Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, July 2nd, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and coming up on today's show, of course, Jake and I are going to go over the latest headlines, tell you about some new discounts being offered to veterans, and later, we are going to speak to Adele Lore, retired from the United States Air Force after going through hell. She was in a vehicle that was hit by an EFP. For those of you who don't know the difference, IED is a bomb, EFP is a projectile. It's basically a makeshift cannon that was aimed at and hit the vehicle she was in. She survived the blast. Her partner and the driver did not. She did lose her eye and part of her shoulder. And you know what? She lost herself for a while. But now, she seems to be doing a little bit better. She didn't leave the house for months on end, but now she left the house, started walking, hasn't stopped. She's taking part in Walk of America, which is a basically cooperation between American and British veterans as they're going to walk across the country to bring attention to veterans' issues. We're going to talk to Adele about that coming up later on today, an amazing Air Force veteran, and can't wait to let you hear her story. And, uh, you know, it's more amazing, although uh, his, his story is amazing enough in and of itself, I guess, than Jake Hughes' story, who joins us now on the morning briefing, if he, if he looks up from his phone. You have an amazing story, too. You were a tanker. And then you were a drill sergeant, and then you were a journalist or broadcaster, I should say. You were a broadcaster, right? Yes. I, so this is weird. You and I both, uh, you eventually made your way to the Defense Information School. 20 years ago, I got to the Defense Information School. It's uh, coming up on almost 20 years exactly. So I go to a birthday party yesterday, Jake, for my son with one of his little uh, preschool friends, Alexander, who's five just turned five, and I'm talking to uh, Alexander's dad, who's in the National Guard, and we're talking. I said, oh, you know, I work here. Give him my card, checking out and everything. He said, oh, what'd you do in the military? I was like, I was a Navy journalist, mass communication specialist. He said, oh, you went to Dimphos? Like, yeah, how do you know about Dimphos? Because most people in the military, as you know, nobody knows what school we go to. Just like I don't know what school anybody else goes to. It's what it's called or whatever. His wife... The mother of the child having the birthday party was an MPAD instructor at Dimphos <laughs> like 10 years ago. So I was like, and I'd, I'd spoken to her many times. It just never came up. So I walked over. I was like, I'm sorry. Did your husband just tell me that you were a Dimphos instructor? And she's like, yeah. Said I went through Dimphos. And then there was uh, another woman there. I think uh, I have a family member, a friend of the family. I'm not sure who worked at Dimphos for a long time. I'm like, this is weird. This is really <laughs> weird. Like I've never met anyone ever outside of professional work, either in the military or out of it, never just come across someone who was like, oh yeah, I went to Dimphos. Never, not once. Never met a single Navy photographer's mate or Navy journalist or, or anybody who did doing the similar job in other branches of the service in a non-professional way. Like nobody at my VFW post, nobody that like, oh, you were in the Navy? Yeah, I was in the Air Force. What'd you do? I was a broadcaster. It's never happened Yesterday, I meet two people who are Dimfos trained. <laughs> uh, it was it was so strange and so bizarre. Kind of the highlight of my week, and I guess that and uh, 
spending all day Saturday at the pool because it was about 100 degrees. And thank goodness we have this amazing pool that our place keeps together. And uh, then yesterday after the birthday party, we went looking for couches. Um, we checked a Macy's and this place told us like, yeah, it's a Macy's furniture gallery because my wife said not every Macy's has couches. So we drive a half hour north to the place that says it has couches. We get there. Oh, no, we don't have couches. <laughs> What Google says you do, why don't you? And so they were like, well, you need to contact them and tell them all about that. So then we drive back down. Turns out the Macy's like five minutes from our house does have furniture. So we wasted a good hour and a half driving up there. And then we both just look at each other like, uh. and the, the mall where this Macy's that we drove up to was, there is some shady stuff going on around this oh, mall. Oh, really? We, it was one of those. You ever been to a mall? Like there was one in Virginia. I can't remember the name of it uh, in the Hampton Roads area that it was like known as the mall that you didn't want to go to unless you needed to. There's one in Houston called Westbrook Mall. Yeah. That's like, that's the very rundown, shady one that you don't go to. I want to say Lynn Haven is the one in Virginia, but I'm not sure if it is or not. There's one. I remember going in there with buddies of mine. We went in to, to do something. I can't remember. There was a store where it was just like a couple of tables had like hubcaps on them. And I'm like, <laughs> it was like hubcaps, a gold chain, and a couple footballs. And we were like, what store is this? Like, what's going on here? Someone had just rented it out and was selling whatever they could. But anyway, this mall, like, it just, from the outside, didn't look. We thought we were going to walk in and be like, oh, okay, this has Macy's on the outside, but it's not uh, a real place. We walk in. It smelled funky first. It smelled moldy. <laughs> but then we looked, and it had all the, like, it had the real merchandise. Everything was in good shape on the tables and everything. But then we walk, find somebody, and we're like, where will we find the furniture? And she's like, at some other store, because we don't have it here. Uh, that was... uh that was essentially our, um, ooh, looking at a video of, uh, looks like a shark pulling some lady into the water. That was crazy. Yeah. Uh, so that was the highlight of my weekend. And I was watching on social media, Jake, as well. You know, I pop through social media a few times every weekend. You had a busy weekend. Was it yesterday that you went out to your uh, movie theater? No, it was Saturday. Saturday, I, okay. Saturday, I decided that I was way behind on movies and I had nothing to do till like nine o'clock at night. So I was like, you know what? Today's going to be a movie marathon. I went there to the movie theater nearby my house with the intent of seeing The Incredibles 2, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Deadpool 2. Mm. I didn't get to see Deadpool because I got out of Jurassic World at four o'clock and Deadpool didn't show till 630. So which ones did you see again? The you Incredibles 2 okay. and Jurassic World, Fallen and Jurassic Kingdom. Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, which is just too long of a title. How about just Jurassic World 2? Like what? It's it's a stupid summer popcorn movie from everything I've heard. That it's enjoyable, but it's dumb. It Does is. it need like a subtitle? Like it, it, Jurassic it, World colon Fallen of the Last Kingdom semicolon The dinosaurs are the kings now. Yeah, well, it is <laughs> it is rather silly, and there are moments where you're like, oh, dude, come on!" But it kept your it kept your attention. There were enough action set pieces to keep it moving along. Enough humor and. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. And then Incredibles 2 was really good. Yeah, we saw that one. I So I, let me ask you a question. And I think there are a lot of us out there, veterans and non-veterans alike, who enjoy the Pixar movies. I would say of Pixar's entire oeuvre, that, that means like everything they've ever done, I, I think. I don't know. I've heard it used in that way. I don't speak French, Spanish a little bit. But anyway... I think that other than the Cars franchise, which the first one was okay, really didn't care for the second or third one or anything like that. The movie Brave, I wasn't particularly a fan of. Um, the Good Dinosaur, I think, was them. I wasn't a fan of that one either. Other than those 
four movies, I guess. So the last two Cars movies, Brave and The Good Dinosaur. And Brave wasn't awful. I just didn't love it. Other than that, everything they've ever made I thought was pretty great. Yeah, I mean... They also beat the sequel bug. I mean, just look at the Toy Story 2. Toy Story 3 had me in tears. You I know, know that movie was that, so intense. When they're going into the incinerator, and uh, I think it's it's Woody who just realizes, like, well, there's, not, there's nothing we can do. Instead of fighting it, let's go out as friends and starts holding the hand of the the... the horse and oh man if you don't tear up at that scene you're a monster i know that movie was like so intense like why why are you making me feel these feels <laughs> that up the first the six minute sequence it begins up with the uh the story of uh, i forget his name the character the main character and his wife whatever um and ellie i think was his wife i remember that but that oh my god if that didn't have you in tears my dad doesn't like a lot of things he likes the pixar movies He's really I don't I can't name too many things that he enjoys in life, but Pixar movies <laughs> are one of them. Um, so and his grandson, of course, and a few other things. But anyway, The Incredibles two I thought was excellent, but I like the first one more. I think the first one was better. What do you think? Uh, I think I'd agree with that because the second one was. Have you seen the first one recently? Oh, uh, recently, no. Yeah, I have seen it. It holds before. up. It holds up. We have it. So it's it's a good one. Most Pixar movies, help most Disney movies do. I think mean, everyone loves. That's the thing. People like they say, "Oh, you should feel awkward walking into a Disney movie as an adult male by yourself." I'm like, no, everyone loves Disney movies. Yeah, come well, on. Pixar isn't even. I mean, Disney owns them, but Pixar is a Disney product the same way that ESPN is a Disney product. Okay, the same parent company, but. It's a different thing, and, and you can tell because anytime Disney on their own, you know, they've had those points of time where Pixar and Disney were separate and then came back to getting all that stuff. Anytime Disney tried to do it on their own, it just didn't work as well. No right. one's as good at it as Pixar is. I don't, I would, I would argue against that. The movie Zootopia made over a billion dollars. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So that, but, and that one was actually a pretty good movie. We liked that one in general, but Disney's also had a lot of failures. In That's the, true. So Chicken Little, I've seen that one, and it made a lot of money, but my God, is it not Wasn't that good. DreamWorks? Uh, Chicken Little was Disney, I believe. I'm fairly certain. DreamWorks was like Shrek. Shrek was good, the first one, and then diminishing returns from that point Yeah, they just out. kept getting worse and it worse and worse. It was the same thing. It was like, uh, it, you know what? Shrek, I, oddly enough... Kind of follows the career trajectory of Mike Myers. Ooh. It's like at the beginning, you're like, yeah, Wayne. All right. Yeah. Austin Powers. Those Austin Powers movies. After the first Austin Powers movie, second one was okay. Then after that, it was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, we don't need this. That gold member. Kept hearing people when that came out, like, oh, it's so amazing. You won't believe it. Oh, check out the first scene. It's got this amazing cameo. The cameo was like Fred Savage. Like, that, <laughs> that's an amazing cameo. What are you talking about? And I think there was, uh, Tom Cruise cameo in it or something. But anyway, yeah, what Mike Myers, man, disappeared off the face of the earth. Just pops up to do a Shrek voice once in a while, and that's about yeah. it. Same thing with Eddie Murphy, really. Well, yeah, Eddie Murphy. Well, they both made so much money. Eddie Murphy also, uh, he burned a lot of bridges uh, from his end after he got arrested with the uh, prostitute. He did, uh, he just kind of cut off a lot of people because people like talked about it, and he didn't like that. Like He didn't go back to Saturday Night Live for... 30 plus years because David Spade made fun of him uh, when he was doing his like weekend celebrity news update right. and made fun of Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy was like well hey I'm part of why Saturday Night Live is still around how dare you uh, he was in Dreamgirls but that was what 10 years ago now 13 yeah. years ago that was a long time um, and he also fathered a child with uh, Scary Spice and claimed that it wasn't his 
Oh. Yeah, he's kind of a, kind of a, not the greatest there when it comes to that stuff. His brother, Charlie Murphy, was a Navy veteran. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. Actually, if you watch the, you know, Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories, which is what made him become famous as he was an actor who was on Chappelle's show. If you watch the one on, uh, on uh, yeah, where he, the first one where he talks about Rick James, he talks about, yeah, man, just got back out of the Navy. My brother's famous. He was in the Navy for, uh, for I think, like four or five years or something like that. Charlie Murphy just passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, from everything I heard, very nice guy. But, yeah, it just goes to show you. I mean, here Eddie Murphy's brother was in the Navy. Um, trying to think of who else, you know, from, like, the world of comedy. Oh, Ron, Wo- Ron White. Ron White was in the Navy. What? Yeah, Ron White was in the Navy. Basically got kicked out of the Navy, but he was in the yeah, Navy. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he's got some uh, some pretty funny jokes about being in the Navy and all of that stuff. Um, MC Hammer, he was in the Navy. Oh. Yeah, MC Hammer, I believe he was a cook in the Navy is what he did. I don't know if he was allowed to wear hammer pants in <laughs> uniform, but he, he was had the bell in. bottoms that were close yeah, enough. We, uh, yep, and the bell bottoms. We still have them on one or two uniforms. Dress whites and dress blues still have bell bottoms, all that good stuff. But anyway, let's take a look around the world of military news and information, and let's start off with the Navy. Jake, we've talked about it. The Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy uh, was Stephen Giordano. He basically just retired uh, in the middle of his term he had something like six months left on the uh the, the typical two years it can be an extended to four years if uh, the chief of naval operations a four-star runs the navy decides to do it essentially was accused of not doing anything in that job worrying too much about getting fine china and a personal driver and complaining that he didn't have his own jet to fly around like three-star admirals do like some three-star admirals do not even all of them have the personal cook and everything like that but he felt, well, I'm number one of all the enlisted people. I should get all this stuff. That's fine. You can argue that, and you could uh, probably make a pretty good case for that as he represents the entire enlisted fleet, and that's the lion's share of those in the Navy. But I think you could make that argument. Well, well no. See, that to me sends a f- complete failure of understanding the enlisted man's role. Mm-mm. Is Even the sergeant major of the Army is going to salute a butter bar. Well, yeah, when you get to, the, there's absolutely those things. However, also, the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy is accorded the same uh, little benefits and things like that and the same respect and the same power as a three-star admiral. Three-star admirals, quite a few of them, there's like 30 of them or something like that, that have their own personal chefs. And the reason they have that is not just because, you know, they don't have time to cook at home or whatever. It's because they they entertain people, so they get a cooking staff. The Master Chief Petty Officer in the Navy does the same thing. So I can understand. I think there is an argument for that position to have those things as well because he's okay. probably entertaining more than some of the three-star admirals who actually have those cooks. So I understand that. I don't understand how that could be one of the main points of your time as Master Chief Petty Officer in the Navy why that would be the thing that people say you're more focused on than helping out the sailors. That's like a side thing. That's like every time you're, you see the CNO, you just go like, Hey, Admiral, you know, I I could really use that chef. I just had the head of the South Korean uh, Navy and army over and we were talking to them and I, you know, I had to keep leaving to go throw the, uh, throw the dessert in and all that (laughs) stuff. You know, like I, that's how you do that. You don't make it like have your staff working on it. You do that yourself and you try to make that happen. His whole thing was about he was focused on that from what we hear and just not leading. And when uh, Navy ships in the uh, in the, when Navy ships in the Pacific Theater, Seventh Fleet were crashing into each other like bumper cars every other week. <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. Nope. There was nothing coming out from the Mick Pond's office. And 
the thing that raised a red flag for me with him then, I didn't even know who the Mick Palm was because I'm not in the Navy, so I don't really care anymore. Also, I was a first class when I got out. I never put on the anchors as a chief, so it's not like that. It's it's just a different world, okay? When I started hearing deck plate leadership being blamed, which essentially means the chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs, and the Mick Pond, I didn't see anything from him on this. Uh, that's like, you know, that, then you're going to have all those khakis out there, all those chiefs and above going like, whoa, where's where's our guy who's supposed to be defending us and talking about you know, what we can do to improve and giving us the, the the layout to go and do what we need to do. He wasn't doing it. That's the uh, that's the problem. So he's gone. Well, now they've got an acting Mick Pond and he is Fleet Master Chief Russ Smith. So. Basically, you have Master Chief Petty Officer in the Navy. Next step down is Fleet Master Chief. So like 7th Fleet, there's one Master Chief who's the top guy at 7th Fleet. Uh, each fleet, basically. Every every uh, Navy force that there is. Force Master Chief, Fleet Master Chief. You've got all these different things. So Russ Smith, who is uh, SWIWAW, so Surface Warfare, Air Warfare, Warfare Information Warfare, um, is calling on Chief Petty Officers to visibly lead and that's according to Navy Times, basically saying, you know, get out there. Don't be sitting in the back and complaining about fine China and your personal chef and not having a jet to fly around and all that good stuff. So it's uh, it's it's interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out from here on out and if they change the selection process. And one thing, which I'm sure people will say is a bias, and there are people within this community who will be like, it's ridiculous you would say that. I didn't know what the previous Pond's prior rate was, but I think there are certain rates that yeah, there are things that right or not get associated with them, like nuclear technicians on submarines. They're typically thought of as very smart, but also having very little street smarts, just no common sense. Very book smart, no common sense. Um, and then there's other things like crypto techs. So basically people who, you know, signals analysts and spies and stuff like that just the nature of their job is kind of secretive. They're not as involved with everybody else because of what they do. That's what the previous McPon, the one who just uh, retired was. It seems to me like there are certain rates that just, it makes sense for someone to be master chief petty officer and maybe like bosun's mate. You know what? If every McPon was a bosun's mate, those are the guys who basically run the ship, make sure the chains are in good shape. Everything's painted, all that stuff. They are the sailor sailors in the Navy. If every McPon was a bosun's mate, I think I'd be okay with that. I think I would. They're kind of old, tough, salty master chiefs. Problem is, I don't think there's too many of them that would even want to do that. But yeah, yeah. I I agree. Like I remember, it was a big point of pride when Sergeant Major of the Army Daly came in because he was a tanker. Ah. So we were all like, "Yes, one of ours." And I do think there need to be because most sergeants major of the Army end up being infantry hmm. because they're the ones that most likely yeah. have that ranger tab and yep. have done special forces and all that other stuff. But I, th and I think they they could use like someone from other MOSs See, in that in, position. In the Navy, you will never have a seal as master chief petty officer in the Navy. You'll, I don't think they've ever had SWIC or EOD master chief as a master chief petty officer in the Navy. Typically comes from, your average sea-going rates or air-going rates. You know, you've got the the sea and air portions of the Navy and construction. I think there has been at least one CB. I think Master Chief Campo was a CB, so there may have been a couple others too. Um, they don't pull from the Special Forces thing, I guess, like the Army does. So you've had like Special Forces guys 
end up as sergeant major of the army? Uh, no, I think I misspoke when I said oh, okay. that. But that, ranger tab, definitely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and all that stuff. And maybe even, I don't know, we'd have to go through and check the list if there's mm-hmm. anybody who was ever a regimental ranger. There's that thing, like when you're an officer, you'll never make a colonel if you don't have a ranger tab. Right, right. And I, I learned that while I was in Afghanistan because there's a uh, uh, lieutenant colonel over there who was not, you know, he wasn't a battalion ranger. That's most of what I knew about rangers because I have a cousin who served in the ranger battalions. Um, he had the ranger tab. I was like, oh, you're a ranger? He's like, yeah, I got the ranger tab. I'm more of an infantry officer. And his job there was he wasn't even outside the wire. He was just doing something in an office there. I still am not sure what it was that he did. But, yeah, it's it's interesting when you talk about these top enlisted leaders and some of them. I, I still wonder, and I'd like to talk to somebody who was involved in the process of, of how this guy got selected because it seems that people that worked with him previously are not at all surprised about this. So, you, maybe he talks a great game, and I'm sure he does. To get into that position, you kind of have to. You have to be a good speaker to get into that position, be able to present yourself well. But they should also be checking with the people that worked for him and alongside him to be able to say, like, hey, what do you think of this guy? And not just from his his current command, where he's coming from, when he's when he's been gunning for that Mick Pond spot. Go back a few years. Talk to people who worked for him at other places. Uh, I, don't, I wonder if they did that. I got a feeling that they didn't. One place he was never stationed, to the best of my knowledge, just celebrated its 50th anniversary of their missile and bomb wings. That is Minot Air Force Base out in Minot, North Dakota, also celebrating 50 years of airmen going, no, please, orders to anywhere else but Minot. No, no. The windswept tundra. I mean, basically, that's the Siberia of the military. I've never, that's not true. I met one person who was stationed in Minot and loved it, and that's because they were a hunter. They were a big game hunter. It was close to Canada, so he was able to go up there to hunt. He was able to go down. It was He liked it there. Everybody else I've ever met who's been to Minot was like, I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did to somebody. <laughs> I don't know. So I thought I was doing a good job. I thought I was an airman who was you know, doing the best uh, job I could as an airman and, and proud of my putting pride in the uniform, and they sent me to, they sent me to Minot. They sent me to Minot, man. That's basically, it's like going to prison is how a lot of airmen use it. Uh, 50 years, my not celebrating that. So uh, congratulations, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Here's an interesting one coming from ConnectingVets.com, our own Matt Saintsing. There's a scooter company offering a discount to active duty military and the veteran community. And as Matt Saintsing says to lead off the story, let it be known that the summer of 2018 has officially been declared the summer of the electric scooter. Were you aware of this, Jake? I was not aware. I wasn't either, but come to think of it, on Friday on my way home, I did see a guy on an electric scooter, like an idiot, going down one of the main road. like he was on the road, not on a highway, but on the road in Washington, D.C., on his little electric scooter, zipping along, no helmet on, no nothing. I'm like, dude, you're moving at like 10, 15 miles an hour. If you get into an accident on that thing, okay, you'll probably live as long as the car doesn't hit you, but you're going to be messed up. Yeah. Didn't seem to care, just zipping along on it. But these scooters are getting more and more popular, and they're also a little bit safer than those stupid hoverboard things that were bursting into flames a couple years ago around Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah, those. You remember those? I saw a kid on one of those by my house the other day, like going down the sidewalk, and fell right on her butt. Just (laughs) fell hard. It did not look good. But, of course, you know, the embarrassment factor, because this was like, I don't know, 12, 13-year-old girl 
her main concern was getting up and making sure nobody saw her, but I saw her and she could tell that I saw her and she, she just zipped away. Um, so this is the red, white and bird program coming from bird scooters. It's offering active duty service members and veterans, the ability to unlock and ride birds without a $1 base fee per ride. So bird scooters are essentially rental scooters. You know how they have in certain places like here, they have the bikes that you the can bike share up. program. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's uh, city bikes up in New York city, which good God, tourists in New York city in the warmer months uh, seem to think like, Oh, this is a better way to get around than the subways, which sometimes smell like urine. I will grant you, but you'd get tourists just riding these bikes down the middle of the road and causing traffic problems in a city. That's already got traffic problems. Cause you got 10 million people in a place that's not built for 10 million people. Um, but these scooters, they have a similar thing. So there's initial $1 base fee per ride, and it gives you the ability to basically do without that. So here's the, uh, the quote that we got from them. These men and women have given so much to our nation. It's just a small token of appreciation for the sacrifices they are making and have made for every American. That was Paige Craig. She's a Marine Corps veteran and vice president of business at Bird. We hope that our affordable, environmentally friendly ride will help active duty members of the military and veterans get to wherever they need to go. So veterans and service members sign up for the program. You download the app or you sign up on their website. We have a link to it on the story. Once you've signed up, you can be enrolled in the red, white and bird by sending a copy of a valid military ID or proof of military service like a DD-214 to their email address. Again, it's in the city and then you're basically able to do it. It's like a Uber, but you're getting a scooter and you do it on the app on your phone and everything. And yeah, go to connectingvets.com. You'll see it on the front page as of right now. It's from Matt Saintsing. Uh, and yeah, check out that story. And if you're one of the people using that, save yourself a few bucks here and there. Someone who's not using a scooter but is using her own two feet, it's Del Lore, Air Force veteran, wounded warrior, injured pretty horribly. She's now walking across the country with Walk of America, and we're going to talk to her about that when we return. A fascinating, inspiring story, and it's coming up right after this. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. That's your website. And we mean that. Each and every piece of content created and posted on ConnectingVets.com is aimed at you, the veteran community. And that doesn't just mean the veterans. That means the family members, the friends, the supporters of veterans. There's something for everybody on the page. And you can also be kept up to date on what's going on to that page by following us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube little click of your mouse or tap on your phone, and you can be living your best veteran life with news, information, benefits, programs, everything that you need. It's all right there, and it's all created by a team of veterans, people who know what it's like to put on that uniform and, just as importantly, know what it's like to take it off that very last time. Speaking of which... Our next guest served in the United States Air Force, retiring as a Master Sergeant in 2010. She's also a wounded warrior, someone who was injured by an EFP 
out in Iraq. For those who don't know the difference between an IED and an EFP, an EFP is essentially like a makeshift cannon that is shooting large projectiles uh, instead of just an explosion. And they are incredibly terrifying, and I'm thankful I only ever had to see and hear about them in training exercises. Adele Lore got to see one up close and personal. She survived that, and she is now doing what she can to raise awareness for veterans' issues and living her great veteran life. Adele Lore, welcome to the Morning Briefing. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing outstanding. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit first about your time in the Air Force. As I said, you retired as a Master Sergeant in 2010. Give us the Cliff Notes version of what your career was in the Air Force. I started out in 1989 as security police. I cross-trained into OSI, which is NCIS for the Air Force. And then after I got wounded, after I lost my eye, I was no longer able to serve as an OSI agent anymore. So I finished my year back where I started, back in security forces, and then retired in 2010. Well, and there you go. And of course, as you mentioned, you did lose your eye, and that was in that EFP attack uh, that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago. When you go through a situation like that, did you assume when you found out that you had lost your eye, you had injuries from shrapnel, as I understand it, did you think that that was the end of your Air Force career? Were you at all surprised that you were able to continue on serving in the Air Force afterwards? Um, I was really hoping I would be able to continue serving. I was told, and um, I... But I wasn't sure at all, because when, when I lost my right eye, I damaged my left. So after the attack, I was completely blind, and I lost part of my right shoulder. So it was, it was a little iffy for the first couple of months what was going to happen. Of course, you were able to remain on active duty in the Air Force until your retirement in 2010 as a Master Sergeant. And, you know, after a long career, a lengthy career, we often talk to retirees, and I think it surprises some to learn that oftentimes because the military was such a big part of their life for so long, a lot of retirees struggle when they leave the military. If you think back to now eight years ago when you left the Air Force, when you took off that uniform for the last time, was that an easy time in your life, a difficult time in your life? What do you remember about transitioning to veteran status? Well, I personally had a really hard time because I wasn't diagnosed until in between my medical board and my re- and when I was released from the military um, with a moderate brain injury and PTSD. So once I was released into, you know, the real world again, I had no, you know, community around me to help me figure out how to immediately deal with, you know, why I couldn't remember anything, why I was hiding in my house, you know, if there was noises outside or hiding in my basement. Kids were playing outside. So I, I think I had a little harder transition until I found, you know, the assistance I needed. How were you able to find that assistance? Because I think that's one of the things that people struggle with, particularly wounded warriors who deal with issues like PTSD, TBIs, of course, you losing your eye in addition to, uh, uh, to everything else that you went through. How were you able to find it? Was there any particular like aha moment where you realized how to get in touch with the support systems that you needed? Well, I actually tried going through numerous mental health facilities and trying to find a counselor that would understand and be able to help me. And honestly, I I went through at least four until finally I found um, a doc in the VA who was absolutely amazing. And he helped me out quite a bit. He helped me 
you know, start out opening the curtains and then it's okay to leave the house at least once a month, you know, go out with friends. And so I think it was thanks to him. And then subsequently years later, um, two nonprofit organizations really helped me out. The first one made me realize I deserve the help that I got and that I deserve to be alive because I lost two guys in my vehicle. And so for years I was pissed off that I lived. And so the first organization, they really, you know, helped me to see that there's a purpose in why you survive. And then the second organization that I found, they gave me an activity that I actually loved doing. It was hiking in the woods and, you know, overcoming when you're on top of a mountain. It's if you can overcome climbing a mountain, you can overcome your own barriers. So. Yeah, those are certainly uh, important things to, again, kind of get back in touch with. It seems to me that the wounded warriors that we talk to, so many who, who have struggled, who have thought, you know, life was over or life had changed so much and would never be the same and struggled with similar issues that you're describing, it, it's really taking that first step for them that gets them on the road to getting to where they need to be. Is that what you found, that the most difficult part was taking those first steps towards uh, getting the help that you needed? I th- the first step was really hard, but when that first step didn't work, then it was even harder to continue trying. You know what I mean? It's like, how many times do I have to keep throwing myself out there and, you know, feeling like I was a setup for failure? However, it was so worth it in the end to now feel more at peace with everything that happened. And so I, I totally promote everyone to get out there. Don't stop seeking. If you know you need the help, get it. You know, and I think that's fantastic advice. I mean, if 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 something doesn't work a first time or you try something one way and it doesn't work, it, it's not the military and veteran way to just give up and not try it again. And a great example of that is retired Air Force Master Sergeant Adele Lore. Again, lost her eye, injuries to her other eye, part of her shoulder in an EFP attack in Iraq that killed two of the people that were in the vehicle with her. Is talking to us about basically her life in the military, her transition from there, and then Adele, I want to talk to you about what you're doing now, which is really incredible. And that is you're involved with the Walking with the Wounded organization. What can you tell us first off about Walking with the Wounded? If someone walks up to you and says, hey, Adele, what's Walking with the Wounded all about? What do you tell them? Walking with the Wounded is a UK organization. It's a nonprofit who helps individuals transitioning out of the military and trying to help them with not only their mental health, but, you know, transitioning into getting another job. And because so, a lot of veterans, when they come out, they don't know how their jobs will, you know, translate into civilian jobs. So they will help them with that. They help with the homeless veterans. Matter of fact, two guys that are on our team are actually participants with uh, receiving their care. They live in a, a homeless veteran community and they're seeking the assistance they need to become productive members of society again and prince harry he promotes it he's one of our sponsors and he he believes that since we go to combat with the brits that we should you know if we fight together we should heal together and that's what brought the u.s and uk together for not only this mission but also previous expeditions And the mission that you're talking about and the team that you mentioned earlier is a team that you're taking part in who are currently working their way as they walk across the United States. Is that is that correct? Is that what your team is doing? Yes, sir. There's three U.S. and three British 
that are the core team and we're walking a thousand miles from LA, which we started on two June to um, New York ground zero on September 6th. We're due to arrive. So yeah, we put 15 to 20 miles a day and yeah, we're, (laughs) it's pretty hot in Louisiana right now. I can tell you that, but it's so worth it to get the word out and to, you know, we're raising money for other nonprofit organizations to help wounded veterans like myself and my teammates. When Walk of America first started to uh, broach the idea to you, like, hey, we're going to do this walk from Los Angeles to New York City. What was your first reaction to that? Was that immediately like, yes, I want to do that? Or was it a, oh, my God, you people are out of your minds? Honestly, it was a heck yeah, I want to do it. I um, I usually hang out in the mountains during the summer. So I hike anywhere from six to 800 miles in the summer in the mountains. So I was like, oh, how hard can it be? Flat land, you know, hiking a thousand miles. And I'm here to tell you, it's a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned quickly just walking on flat, you know, and on highways with the heat, there's no, you know, getting out of it. And yeah, it's, it was more challenging than I I thought, but it's so much, I mean, it's definitely worth it. You've been at it for uh, about three weeks now, starting off in early June. What's the experience been like so far, and what has been the biggest surprise to you as you've made your way uh, towards the East Coast? Honestly, um, the generosity of the people that we're meeting, we're getting... Uh, Vietnam vets that are shaking our hands, wanting pictures with us to thank us for what we're doing because they didn't get the support when they got out. And um, in Texas, uh, California was, don't get me wrong, they were awesome. They were supportive with us. But Texas, oh, my gosh, the patriotism once we walked into there and uh, the oil field workers, they put on a huge fundraiser for us and raised almost $50,000 to go to nonprofit organizations. So, yeah, the love and support we've been getting along the way has just been truly amazing. That sounds really incredible. And also incredible, I think, probably from your perspective, is I'm sure you've been walking through places that you'd never been to before, you'd never thought of before. What has the sightseeing been like so far through these first few weeks as you work your way east? Have you been impressed by what you've seen as, as you guys are working your way uh, down the road? Oh, definitely. In California, I know I got to come back for those beaches. And then in Texas, we, you know, we're just doing parts of Austin and Dallas and Houston and everything else. So, I mean, I definitely want to come back and spend more time in that area and get to really see everything they have to offer. We got just a bit and taste that makes you want to come back for more. Right. And and your team is, is keeping moving. As you said, you've got a destination and you've got a date that you want to get there, which means you have to cover a certain amount of mileage a day. So you get to take in the sites. But overall, when you are when you are walking, when you're doing the walk, what's going through your mind as you're moving down that road? Honestly, um, I, I saw this poster up in the Intrepid, uh, the Center for Intrepid and in the hospital in Texas. And it, it, it's what keeps me going. It's whenever you feel like quitting, remember why you started. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing because it is hot and tiring. And, you know, we're, we're still getting to know each other pretty well, you know, at this point. But, I mean, some of these long days of hanging out in 
105 degree weather. We have to keep each other motivated and why we're doing this. And of course, that is what's going on, and it's this uh, this teamwork that's going on between not just American veterans, but the British veterans as well. As you said, Walk of America is is uh, I mean this this is something that is taking place uh, and is actually uh, out of the UK with the support of Prince Harry and so on. What has that camaraderie been like? Has it been uh, a surprise to you how well you get along with the British veterans or how much the two of you just understand each other despite being from you know very different cultures? I don't honestly, I don't think it's that much of a surprise. I've worked with them downrange some you know periodically, and again, we all have the common bond. We've all been to combat. We've all seen you know our own things. And so we have that common bond immediately anyways. We all know we have each other's backs. And I I think that has been the greatest part is no matter where we all came from, because even in the States, it's, you know, I'm from Rhode Island. One guy's from Dallas. The other guy's from Puerto Rico. And then you got the three UK. And instantly we were all just a band of brother and sister. So it's been awesome. (laughs) When it comes to the physicality of walking that kind of distance, that's something that I know right now I am not in the shape to do. (laughs) Was there anything that you had to do to prepare for it, or were you at all worried about being able to do these miles that you guys are logging every day? I I hired a personal trainer at the gym, and she kicked my butt daily. And then um, I have three dogs, so I would take each dog out for their own walks to at least get 15 miles in with my dogs. So that's how I did it. <laughs> well, that that's, I think, a bare minimum of what I would need to do. I might need a couple of years to, <laughs> to lose pounds in a, <laughs> to be able to do that. But has it gotten easier as you've moved along or has it been pretty much the same all the way through? Uh, and how do you expect it'll be as you get, you know, months down the road as you move closer to your destination? It'll, it'll get easier. I mean, at the beginning, we were dealing with all the blisters and everything else, whereas now we um now it's just getting the repetition of it all so at least we've gotten through the blister phase so (laughs) made it a lot easier that certainly sounds like it would and of course (laughs) we are speaking to retired air force master sergeant adele lore she is a wounded warrior who was wounded in an efp attack in iraq that killed two other service members that were in her uniform with her there today. And she is now walking across America with Walk of America, a UK organization that's bringing together British and American veterans to walk across the country, bringing attention to veterans issues, seeing beautiful sights as she told us she already has and so on. And Adele, as you mentioned, you got quite some support in Texas, particularly when you were going through there. Where can people go to keep track of where your team is and what you're doing? Is it social media that they go to? Is there a website? How would you recommend they best uh, figure out where the Walk of America team is going to be? If they go on walkofamerica.com for further information up at the top, it'll have routes and they can watch us and see where we're going to go. They'll see what date. And I highly recommend they come on out and support us along the way. We love to see the cheers and get the handshakes and of other veterans who have been in the same shoes we're in, but we just got a a lucky opportunity to be out here. 
And there is also a Twitter account I know, Support the Walk, that you can go to that's also posting some amazing little photos and videos. I saw a video of an alligator running across a river or a lake there, it looked like, (laughs) down in Texas. You guys are seeing some amazing things, and it sounds like you're already having an amazing time. Adele, let me ask you, on behalf of your team, you all have had the opportunity to get to know each other for a few weeks and talk about a lot of things. What would you say is the overarching message that your team of American and British veterans wants to give to people as they work their way across America? We just want to make sure any veteran out there that's suffering from any of the invisible wounds gets the help they need. It took us a long time, every one of our teammates, to sit there and get that help, and we just want to make sure other people get. If they need it, get it. That is indeed the key. And we've been speaking to someone who's trying to make that happen through her involvement with Walk of America, Adele Lore, retired Air Force Master Sergeant. Thank you so much for joining us on today's program. And thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you for dealing with all the blisters and alligators and and 100 degree weather (laughs) and everything else. It's really amazing what you're doing. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Our thanks again to Adele Lore, uh, truly, Jake, a great ambassador for all veterans, including our wounded warriors. And what she went through with the EFP, something that I, I couldn't even imagine. IEDs are terrifying enough, Jake. EFPs, uh, as you know, being a tanker, even you guys were worried about those. Yep, my second deployment, we were warned about EFPs because they could almost, in some cases they could, punch through tank armor. Because what it is, it's called an explosively formed projectile, which basically means a shape charge. It's the same principle as the heat rounds, high explosive anti-tank rounds that we use. And basically what it is, is you take a circular structure like an oil barrel or something like that, and you put a piece of copper in there in a convex shape. Or concave shape. I yeah. can't remember which concave. one. Concave. Yeah. Concave. And then the explosive goes through that and it basically forms uh, how much I'm going to put this? Uh, like a uh, dart almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Almost like a sabo round, how it's just one rod and it is able to punch right through armor. And it's soft metal, so it's kind of liquefied almost when yep. it happens. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. You know, I think with an IED. If you get hit with one of those, which, thank God, never had to go through any of this, uh, actually hitting one of the vehicles I was in, that that's something that you know so many people have had to deal with, and it's, it's led to so many uh, continuing issues for those who do survive it. But there were vehicles that were essentially vaporized by IEDs where it was almost instantaneous, and you were killed, and, and that was it, particularly in the early days before the uh, first the up-armored Humvees and then the MRAPs. Um, if you go out, I think most of us would want to go out immediately where there's no pain and suffering. The EFP, there's typically going to be some pain and suffering. If that thing hits you in the body anywhere other than your head, I mean, it might kill you instantaneously, but there's probably going to be some pain and suffering. You're going to have people like Adele who lost an eye, had sight problems in the other one. You can go and look up Adele Lore, L-O-A-R is her last name. You can look her up online. There are pictures of what she looked like afterwards, and it's it's terrifying, and it's horrifying. And she almost lost both eyes. She lost part of her shoulder and also lost, more importantly, I think, to her, her partner. She was an Air Force investigator, lost her partner, and lost the driver of that vehicle who was with them. Just a, uh, a truly, truly horrifying event that she went through and, uh, you know, is, is again, 
an amazing ambassador for what she was able to overcome, not just the physical injuries, but the mental injuries as well. Wondering why she was the one who survived out of that vehicle. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, she is an inspiration and an inspirational story. And I'm glad that people around the country are going to be able to meet her and the team of Americans and Brits that she's with for Walk of America 2018 as they make their way across the country. You can find out more about them, as we said, but we'll recap it again. Walkingwiththewounded.org.uk. And that is, uh, they've got a mailing list on there to be kept up to date on where they are and that whole thing. I'm trying to see if, uh, you know, where, if they have the, uh, the whole events, past events, expeditions, I'm not really seeing the destinations on there, but there, there is a place that you can find on the website where they're going to be on which day. I know they're coming here in a few months in like September, they're going to be around here. So, uh, we're probably going to go out and say hello in person to Adele and the rest of her team, but truly just amazing things, uh, that they are doing. We were talking earlier, Jake, about the Master Chief Petty Officer in the Navy, the now acting Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, and of course the now former, somewhat disgraced, I would say, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, and the selection process and how he got there. Well, as we were in between breaks there, I did a little Googling, and it's one of the first things that came up. There's a story in Navy Times in 2016, September 25th, about misconduct nearly ended his career, how tough lessons shaped the new MCPON. There are certain things that you can go to captain's mast for that that happen, that are understandable, that are explainable, yeah. that I think don't show a complete lapse of moral character or lack of moral character. Uh, this is not one of them. I was unaware of this, but you had a Mikpon who went to captain's mast, which already is kind of like, I don't know about that, you know? He was a petty officer first class, so a senior enlisted leader, just before putting on chief for him. 1996, he'd been in for seven years. He's a crypto tech, qualified submariner, went to MAST. Why, Jake? Do you have any idea why he would have? I don't. Please inform me, Eric. Well, you actually do, because we read it off. Yeah, I know. That was good. That was good. I'm trying to maintain the illusion. That was good acting, Jake. Nobody knows. We'll delete out this part. We'll edit it. <laughs> Here's the quote from him to Navy Times. I had an inappropriate relationship with a junior sailor who was married, and I was wrong. You were wrong, shipmate, yet you think? First off, fraternization, junior sailor, not allowed to do it. Junior sailor was also married, double not allowed to do that. And this guy was selected as Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy? Did they did they think that that would somehow benefit? Like, well, no, he'll understand those people are committing adultery and fraternization, and he'll know how to deal with them. I know how to deal with them. Get them out. Yeah. He should have gotten out at that point. This is not, you know, I saw stuff like this, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it, this guy, he got busted down to second class and spent the next, I got busted down and lost a stripe and had to spend the next four years again as a second class. Really? How about the husband of that junior sailor that you were sleeping with? Yeah, what happened to him? Yeah. What, do you think he had to deal with it for four years? Do you think he had to deal with the toughness of being a second class for four more years? Oh, so you didn't get to put on first class again until you'd been in for 11 years? Just about average amount of time to put it on, 9, yeah. 10, 11 years. This is, uh, he called the mistake a watershed moment to Navy Times. <laughs> Said it served as a catalyst for him to change his life and reshape his career. Okay. You know what? Okay. Yeah, there's some redemption. Someone who's done that should never be in the position of Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. And you want proof? Just look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks. And apparently over the two years that he was in that office. This, I had no idea about this. His professional record is otherwise spotless. Oh, yeah. 
It's like someone who murders someone. Be like, well, he hasn't committed any other crimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely Great. clean except for this huge, glaring problem. Oh, and it is a huge, glaring problem. Our huge, glaring problem today, well, we're just about done. On behalf of Jake Hughes and myself, Eric Day, I want to thank you for joining us on the morning briefing. Again, thank you to Adele Lore, and you can go to walkingwiththewounded.org.uk to find out more about Walk of America. And as far as us, well, you'll be able to find out more about us tomorrow morning. Our final pre-4th of July show, final live show of the week will be taking place tomorrow. Until then, have a great day, and we will see you 0800 tomorrow. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t